of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This morning, we're going to look one more time at this chapter, and we're going to look at the 17th verse. Uh, alluded to it in the message last week, but it begs for more treatment. We're going to couple with our consideration of this one verse a passage from Ezekiel in the Old Testament, the 36th chapter. I don't know if you've noticed it, but many times these principles, these truths, which stand out so greatly in the New Testament, are shadowed in the Old Testament. God speaks about this particular matter in the 36th chapter of Ezekiel, hundreds of years before the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote verse 17. So let's begin with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Please keep your place there. And now turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, the 36th chapter. I'm going to begin reading with verse 16 and read through verse 32. Ezekiel 36:16. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols. Also, I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name, because it was said of them, These are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, And put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. And I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. 
Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that they were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. As far as I'm concerned, Sam Houston is the most illustrious figure in the history of the state of Texas. He was twice a governor. And there are others who could say in two different stints they were governors of a state in the United States. But he was a governor of two states, the great Tennessee and the lesser Texas, I might add. He was quite a man. From his youth, he had an affinity for Native Americans. He associated very closely with the Cherokee Nation. He became adopted by them. He was given the name the Raven. It was a name he wore very proudly because of his love for the Cherokee people. After a series of events, he found himself down, beleaguered, feeling totally defeated in his life, an alcoholic, among another tribe of Native Americans in the state of Arkansas. And there he took his name again, the Raven, and he became a leader of those people, people who were not like himself. He was their leader. He is described by one historian as the great drunk. And in so saying, that historian was not alluding only to his problem with alcohol, but to the character himself. He was a brawler. He never walked away from a fight. He fought politically. He fought militarily. He fought fist fights. He fought all sorts of fights. And he did that well into his 50s. He married for the third time to a woman to whom he was married for 23 years. Her name, Margaret Lee. Margaret was from Alabama. She and her family had migrated to Texas. She became acquainted with the general, the governor, yes, and the once president of the Republic of Texas. And he asked for her hand in marriage. She was given in marriage to him. She was a devout follower of Jesus Christ who happened to be a Baptist, by the way. And she prayed daily, fervently for the salvation of her husband whom she loved. She also shared the gospel in a very tender way with him. It was his own testimony that he never would have come to faith had it not been for her exemplary life. She backed up all what she said about Christ by the way in which she related to him. In 1854, November the 19th to be exact, he declared his faith publicly in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had made a profession of faith decades before, but it was really not a genuine one. When he made this profession of faith, he followed it by being baptized in a cold creek in East Texas, near Independence, Texas. And when he was about to go down into that creek, the baptizing hole it was called in that particular creek, 
the man who was baptizing him, a certain Reverend Burleson, noticed that he was still carrying his pocket watch on his hip. And he said, General, don't you think you should take your watch off because it will be ruined in the water? And the general said, thank you, Reverend. He took that pocket watch off, handed it to a friend, and then began to descend into the water again. And the pastor said one more time, wait, general, your wallet is still in your pocket. He said, I know my wallet needs to be baptized too. (laughs) Well, he professed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ at the age of 61. Let me stop here just a moment. There's likely a woman in this room or a man in this room who is married, who is a believer in Jesus, but his spouse is not. Don't lose heart. You can be like Margaret Lee Houston, praying for your spouse, living out the faith before your spouse. And God is hearing your prayers, even though there is no evidence of movement toward Jesus. Don't give up. The big drunk met an even bigger Savior, and his life was changed. He was a new man in Christ. His life, after he was baptized, he lived almost a decade longer before he died. And what God will do in anyone's life, no matter how late in life they come to Christ, is amazing. So don't lament the fact if you've come to Jesus late in life that you wasted all the years before. The Bible says all our sins have been washed away. They are now white as snow. The Bible talks about how as far as the east is from the west, so far have our transgressions been removed from us. Their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more is what the writer of Hebrews says. And Jesus says, He who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and is passed from death into life and will not come into judgment. This is not just all that could be said from Scripture, but it's representative of the mind and heart of God through Jesus Christ. But one thing I do, Paul says, Forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize which is waiting for me in heaven. Look, thinking about the past, all your failures, if you've confessed your sin before the Lord, they are gone. And today is the day we have to know and grow. In every aspect of your salvation, if you are saved, is that which only God can bring to pass. If you will, look at these two verses that are really the centerpieces in the 36th chapter of Ezekiel, verse 26 and 27. Look at it. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God the Father is the one who decided that he was going to send his son, who himself was God, and who also agreed with God the Father. There was a collaboration between Father, Son, and also Holy Spirit as far as the plan of salvation was concerned. God the Father initiates your salvation. The Bible says in the book of 
psalm, the third psalm, the eighth verse, it says, salvation comes from the Lord. God is the author of salvation in our justification, meaning that we have been made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ as we placed our faith in His work on our behalf. But in our sanctification also, the Holy Spirit is at work. It is He who gives us the capacity to grow spiritually. This is called our sanctification. We are being set apart to be like Christ and to glorify God. And then finally, in our glorification, when we're free not only from the penalty of sin that was purchased in the justifying work of Christ, or the power of sin in our life in between the moment we were born again, saved, and then till we leave this world, and we will no longer be able to sin. Isn't it a wonderful salvation? The Bible says we should be careful not to neglect so great a salvation. This is impossible to grasp fully with our minds, but it's true in our minds, if not in our hearts, because we have come to have the mind of Christ and know the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's dig in to this statement that's going to show on the screen that God the Father initiates the new creation. Let me stop here just a moment. And the phrase new creation doesn't mean that people who come to Christ have a makeover. It doesn't mean that they've been cleaned up. What it means is they were dead in their trespasses and sin. Do you know that's what the Scripture says about you? The Bible is not very flattering when it paints a picture of us who have been born again. In fact, it's downright, I guess you would say, insulting. But thank God for such insults because it's true that we were dead. And what did God do? The Bible says God has raised us from the dead. The Apostle Paul even alludes to this in the book of 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, when in describing God, he describes Him as the God who raises the dead, meaning raising Jesus from the dead, of course, but the same power which was necessary to raise the dead, cold corpse of Jesus Christ from the dead is necessary to raise our dead spirits into life. And the Father initiates this new creation. New creation suggests the impossibility of do-it-yourself salvation. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 15 The Apostle Paul says, circumcision is nothing, nor is uncircumcision anything. It is a new creation that matters. The new creation, that's speaking of you and me, if we know Jesus Christ. Circumcision, uncircumcision, that discussion to the Galatian church was indicative of a problem that was in that church. And the problem was that the Galatians had listened to false teaching and they had been convinced, many of them, that they needed to be circumcised if they were Gentiles in order to be full-fledged believers and followers of Christ. This smacks of what some so-called Christians advocate today. You have to be baptized to be saved. You're adding something to what only God could do. And what was that? He's the one who raised you and me from the dead. The Bible says we've been born again by the living and abiding Word of God. You recall the conversation which Jesus had with one Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who was called by Jesus as the teacher of Israel, came 
under cover of night to have a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus says, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Literally what it says, unless you are born from above, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what being born again is. In the introduction to the Gospel of John, we hear these wonderful words, but as many as received Jesus, to them He gave the right to become, notice the word, become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. In other words, we can't contribute one drop of that which is necessary for our becoming children of God. But born of God. I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but I don't apologize. We must be born of God. It's not about our goodness. It's not about some ritual we might submit to. And by the way, baptism is important. It's your coming out party. I heard about a man who wrote to his mentor and told his mentor, I've just led a man to faith in Jesus Christ. This man was of the Jewish religion. And his mentor wrote back, Has he been baptized yet? And the answer was no. He said he won't last if he's not baptized. Because that is our public confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you have been born again, but you have yet to be baptized as believers. The Lord wants you to confess Christ that way. We're going to be having baptism next week, God willing. And we call people to follow Jesus and publicly declare their faith in Him. But baptism doesn't save you. You could be baptized in eight different churches, eight different groups, and still not have eternal life. Eternal life is found only in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. If a person is not in Christ, that person can no more change herself or himself than a leopard can change its spots. The new creation, it's ex nihilo. Out of nothing. It's not like the Lord comes and sort of patches you and me up, but we're dead. And He makes a new creation. Amazing. It's a work that's incredible. The old man, as Paul refers to our life outside of Christ, cannot be mended. It must be ended. And it comes when we deny ourselves and say, Okay, Lord, I can't save myself. I beg you. To save me. Forgiveness of our sin is by necessities God's prerogative. Regeneration is an extraordinary work demanding omnipotence. Think about it one more time. God has to raise us from the dead. The new creation is necessary because of the defiling work of sin in our lives. Did you get that word as we read from the 36th chapter of Ezekiel, defile? I don't remember the last time I used the word, frankly. But that's the word of choice of the Holy Spirit to describe what our sin does. And what form did their sins take? You picked it up as we read it, I'm sure. They were idolatrous. Well, what does that mean? You might say, today we don't worship idols. The Bible says in the book of Colossians chapter 3 that greed is idolatry. Have you ever been greedy? You ever have a yen for something and it just sort of overtakes your mind and drives you? Well, that's idolatry. 
the idolaters of this particular era worshipped the idols of the land that they knew as the promised land. Let me give you a couple of these identities of idols. One was Astart, and Astart, the name itself means shame. She was the goddess of war and sexual power. And you can imagine how those two things went together. You notice in this passage of Scripture how the prophet talks about blood was in the land. There was another false god, Molech. Molech was a god to whom human sacrifices were being made, particularly infants and babies, children. Can you imagine? This is Israel. Idolatry. And we think about our own nation where sexual immorality is rampant and abortion is at a very high level. And we need to understand that our own country is not that much unlike Israel was in this passage of Scripture. That kind of defilement that involves bloodshed and sexual immorality is something that is the result of a hardened heart. Did you notice? Look again at verse 26 in this passage of Scripture. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new heart within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I got to thinking as I was getting ready to share this with you about stone. Stone is hard. Stone is cold. Stone is stubborn, isn't it? It's unyielding. Stone is inanimate. It's unresponsive. But when we receive a new heart from the Lord, and he, by the way, is the only doctor who can really perform the right kind of heart transplant we need. We all need it. And he knows how to do it. And it's not without pain, by the way. It cost him a lot, didn't it? it cost him his son. But also, it costs, it's painful when we have to decide whether to deny ourselves and not yield to the Lord. That's hard to get going in that direction. But you know what the Lord gives you when you respond properly? A heart of flesh. And whereas the heart of stone is hard, a heart of flesh is supple, where the heart of flesh is, heart of stone is cold, a heart of flesh is warm, where a heart of stone is unresponsive, is stubborn, then a heart of flesh has the capacity to submit to the God who created that spiritual heart in that person. We need to understand that we who know Jesus have been given by the Father at his own initiative, this heart of flesh. It's beautiful, isn't it, to think about? Sin expresses itself in rebellious behavior. We see this also in Ezekiel 36. New creation results in permanent change. Look back at 2 Corinthians 5.17 for just a moment. Therefore, if any person is in Christ... That person is a new creature of creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now follow this carefully. The word passed away, have passed away, it means there's this sudden passing away. And it's gone. Suddenly it happens. 
Do you remember when you were born again by the living and abiding Word of God? Do you remember how all of a sudden there was a change in you, in your heart? Why? Because you were given a new heart. That's why. And then that section goes on to say, all things have come to be new, have come to pass. The new has come. And that verb, the way it's used, is as if to say, once you have been given this heart of flesh, having had heart surgery, the old dead heart has been removed. Once that's happened, it can't be undone. What God does lasts forever. That's what the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes. Whatever God does with His hand lasts forever. And there's nothing that that applies to any more than you're being given a new heart and you're being saved and born again by the living and abiding Word of God. That can't be undone is what the Bible teaches us. The old man in us must die. And you're saying, what are you talking about? I'm a woman. I know my old man needs to die sometimes, but not, not me, you know. Well, the Bible says, and this is very important, in Romans 6, 6, it says this. Knowing this, that our old man has been crucified with Christ so that our body of sin might be made powerless. This is our birthright as followers of Jesus. We don't have to sin if we know Jesus. We are no longer slaves to sin because we have indentured ourselves to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He is the one who is our ruler. And we trust Him to reproduce His life in and through us. Do you know the name George Foreman? Some of you are too young to know. But I was an interested follower of him in his early years, especially as he was rising into prominence. It was the twilight of Ali's career. And Ali was really washed up as far as the pundits were concerned. And a challenge was arranged by certain promoters between Foreman, who was then the reigning heavyweight champion of the world at the age of about 24, and Ali was about 36. So they fought the rumble in the jungle in Zaire. Do you remember that? I remember it. Some of you can't remember it because you weren't born. But I I was interested in it for sure. And I I listened, and I was really amazed that this washed-up former heavyweight champion had his way, really, in a very unorthodox approach And he won the fight against Foreman. And Foreman, according to one person who later became his promoter, Bob Arum is his name, said about Foreman at that time when he was the reigning champion, he said he was mean, he was ugly, he was cantankerous, and he was a horrible person. That was... A description that was an apt description of him. And then, in retrospect, 19 years later, when Foreman looked back on himself in that situation, he said about him, not even calling him himself, he says, that was a vicious fellow. That's the way he described himself. But he won a fight against 
Another younger opponent, this man was 19 years younger than he, Michael Moore, who was the champion, heavyweight champion. And he somehow or another won that fight and regained the crown in midlife. That's a lot of you middle-aged men's dream, to rise to that level again that you once had in your life. We old men, we've quit dreaming those dreams. It's a real blessing, and we'll just tell you in advance. You won't be bothered anymore. But listen to what, listen to what Ali said. Not Ali, but George Foreman said. Sometimes I feel guilty that the old George, George is dead. Good and dead, he went on to say. And I get to take his name, his fame, and his money. Well, that's what happened to you if you know Christ. The old Mike Woods is dead. And so I, and I'm, I'm just, I know I'm on solid ground, but it kind of unnerves me to say this, but I can take the name of Jesus. It's my name. I can take the fame of Jesus. It's His fame. And I can take the riches that are in Christ, the Bible says. I'm not talking about money here, okay? But we do know that our God will supply all our needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We know in the book of First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, later in the book of 2 Corinthians, where the Bible says, Jesus became poor on our behalf in order that we might become rich in Christ. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's your birthright. If you know Jesus, that's who you are. You're in Christ. You're a new creation in Christ. You need to embrace who you are in Christ. There's nothing to boast of, is there? Because we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, would you agree from what we've learned today that God the Father initiates your salvation and mine. But He also, by His Spirit, remember the Holy Spirit's not just a God in a secondary sense. He is God, a very God. Where do I get that? Well, I'm not going to a lot of detail. But if we were to look at the third chapter of Second Corinthians, this is what we would learn. We would learn that the Spirit of God moved the pen of the Apostle Paul after speaking to his mind. And this is what he wrote down. The Lord is God. The Spirit of the Lord is God. So, the Holy Spirit is God. God the Father is God. God the Son. The three together, they make up the Godhead. God, our God, the Holy Spirit motivates the new creation. And this is what I would call intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation. And you might say, well, what are you talking about? What's that all about? Well, I'll try to illustrate it. It's a great day when a parent sees a child voluntarily obey something that that child has been taught. I'm reminded of the story of a little boy. It was before the days of seat belts, and this boy was riding with his dad in the front seat of the car, and he stood up in the car. He wanted to stand up so he could get a panoramic view from the front seat. And his father told him, sit down. And when he told him, he began to inch over 
a little further away from his dad. And his dad said, I'll tell you one more time, sit down. This time he inched all the way over to the passenger side door. And in those days, those cars were bigger than ours. It's hard to reach all the way over and get him. And he said, if you don't sit down, I'm going to stop this car and I'm going to spank you good, boy. Spankings were okay in those days. And so the little boy sat down, didn't get any closer to his dad, and he folded his arms like this. And he jutted his lip out. And his daddy said, son, it seems like you're unhappy with me. And then the little boy said, daddy, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Right? Well, that's the way we are sometimes, isn't it? But when you're motivated intrinsically, you're motivated by the Spirit of God. It's not something you have to do. It's something you want to do. Because you recognize how indebted you are. A debt that you could never have paid. And Jesus paid it all, didn't He? He didn't know it, but He paid it. I looked through my file in preparation for this message. And I found a piece, and I don't have the date on it, but there's a reference to 1987. And there is a person, some of you probably have known, if he's still alive, or know this individual, Eddie Kipp. Actually, it's Eddie Nip. And he had a heart transplant on Christmas Eve of 1987. And listen to what he said when he was being interviewed as to what it was like to take another person's heart. Listen to what he said. Someone had to die in order for me to live. It's a hard decision for donor families to have to make. And in some cases, it's hard for recipients to accept. Someone had to die for you and me to live. We know who he is. Jesus. Somebody had to make a decision in his family to send him to die your sin and mine. We know who that was. The Father sent Him. Is that love or what? As Ryan quoted from 1 John 3, 1, that beautiful verse about the love of God. And it says, what kind of love? Really, that doesn't capture the idea. It translates one word, that phrase, what kind of. It translates one word, which means an out-of-this-world kind of love. That begins to get to the root of the idea. This is the love of God for us. Amazing. He initiated our salvation by sending His Son. He motivates us intrinsically. The Spirit accomplishes this task by indwelling the new creation. The Christian life is not about improvement. It's about impartation. Impartation of the presence of the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God in us. Think about it. What do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? That Holy Spirit uses the Bible to motivate the new creation. Look at verse 27. Let's read it again. I will put my spirit within you and cause you, get this, to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This same language is used by Joshua in Joshua 1.8 where the Lord says to Joshua, 
He says, do not let this book of the law, that would be the Bible, depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful. The same Hebrew word. Be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. That would be dawning. To do everything in the Word of God, were it not for the fact that God has given us His Spirit and His Spirit will make us, will work in our lives. And the Bible is used by the Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit inspired the prophets. It was He who moved people to write down what we have at the Bible. It is He who has preserved a nearly perfect 100% copy from the original autographs. Textual critics have worked and worked and worked, and we have a wonderful, accurate, reliable document compared to all the other documents of antiquity. They pale in comparison. They don't even hold any water, really, compared to the reliability of Scripture on the science, mind you, of textual criticism. So we have the Word of God. The Spirit uses the Bible to guide us. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for rebuking and teaching, correcting, training in righteousness, so that we who are the people of God, those in whom the Spirit of God dwells, we can be fully equipped for every good work, not just some, but all good works which God has given us to do. Teach me your way that I may walk in your truth, is what David wrote. Later he said, teach me how to do your will. For you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Do you know the Holy Spirit's job, among others, is to lead us on level ground? In Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And John 14, 26, Jesus says, He will ask the Father, and the Father will send another helper, that is the Spirit of truth, the Spirit who wrote the truth, the Spirit who explains the truth. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance everything that Jesus has said to us. We have it in the Word of God. A sure sign that you're a new creation is that you understand the Word of God. Now, I don't want to rush through this. Do you understand the Bible when you read it? Or is it like a book that's a mystery to you? I'm not talking about some things that are debatable about the when you get down in the weeds of all the details of the second coming of Christ. He's only going to come one way, but there's so many devout followers of Jesus who have all kinds of ideas. I'm not talking about that sort of thing. I'm just talking about the clear teaching of Christ. Are you drawn to that? Well, let me be as gentle as I know how to, but at the same time be as truthful as I know how to. If you don't understand the Bible you probably have not been born again. That's a strong statement. But it's true that the Bible teaches us. And I would say if you don't, begin to ask the Lord today, maybe the day of your salvation. Say, Lord, save me. The Spirit uses the Bible not only to direct us, but also to correct us. He does. John 16:8. Jesus talks about the Spirit will convict us of sin and judgment, and righteousness. And nobody likes to be put under the spotlight. But look, I have grown over the years to deeply appreciate the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. This morning in the early worship service, we had a great worship service in the music period early this morning. 
I thought at least. I was worshiping the Lord. I was brought to tears more than one time as I thought about the words which we sang to the Lord. And then all of a sudden, something flashed into my mind and I started following that thought. And before long, I had gotten off the path. I think I breached into sin thinking about this particular situation. And so what I did, I was convicted of the Spirit. It was just like that. probably didn't last more than about 15 seconds. But then I did what I had been taught to do by the Spirit. I said, oh, Spirit of the, of the living God, please, I'm so sorry. I have quenched you. I have grieved you probably too. Please, Lord, forgive me. You know what He's always ready to do? He's ready to... That's why He convicts us. He loves us. He wants us to be following Him because He knows when we deviate from the path that He's established for us, there's nothing good that can come from that. Nothing. And so, we need to be alert to the fact that He guides us and He also chides us by the Spirit. Here again, it's a sure sign that you're saved if you agree with what David says in Psalm 38:18. He says, I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Are you troubled by your sin? That's a good sign that you know the Lord. And if not know the Lord, you're on the pathway to really giving your life to the Lord. This Holy Spirit motivates change in the new creation. Attitude changes. You begin to think like Him. You know, the Bible says we have the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. What's that all about? We have it. Where is it given to us? In the Bible. The Bible talks about Jesus. It contains many of His words. And then Paul talks about them. The writer of Hebrews talks about those words. The Apostle John talks about those words. The Apostle Peter, Jude, and James, the brothers of Jesus, write letters which are included in our New Testament. Revelation by John. My, my, my. What a blessing we have. And he addresses attitude more than action. Because we can act right. The Pharisees acted right, didn't they? Paul, before he got saved... He acted right, but it was all in dependence on himself. He was not depending on the Lord. He was depending on himself. And we want to have an attitude change. And the way that occurs is when you receive Jesus, you give your life to him. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. You ask the Holy Spirit to control you. You put yourself in a position to hear from the Holy Spirit every day. You open the book. You read it not to fulfill some kind of obligation. You come because you're hungry for fellowship with Him. He teaches you. He speaks to you. He alters the course of your existence. And He uses you and me, believe it or not. He uses us just like He used Jesus to help people. Because it's Jesus in me and Jesus in you who changes people's lives through us. What a wonderful God we serve that He would do this. He changes our actions as we abide in Him. He answers our prayers as we abide in Him. He is the true vine, He says, and we like branches in a grapevine abide, and His life flows through us. Cut off the branch, and what happens? No life, no fruit. The Father and the Spirit's goal in making us new creations is the glory of God. Not our glory. He loves us. That's been established today.
more than we can ever imagine. He loves us. But he's really most interested in his name being glorified. You might say, well, I don't want to serve a jealous God like that. Well, by the way, we don't make the rules. He's God. We're not. (laughs) And we may not understand it, but it's true. And we want to be that kind of people, don't we? We want to be a church like that. We want to be individuals like that. We want to serve the Lord with gladness in this situation. I'd like to finish with two illustrations. One is from the author of Amazing Grace. If you were to look Google, you can do it right now. I don't mind if you do Google and say, what is the most popular Christian hymn? And if it's not this hymn, don't tell me, okay? (laughs) But it's Amazing Grace. You know it, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. What's he talking about? Is he just overstating the case about how wretched his life was? No. He was a slave trader. He was a slave trader. He was a human trafficker of the worst sort. He came to faith in a near-death experience. And he came to faith because when he was orphaned as a young boy, he was put into the care of an aunt who was a devout follower of Christ. And she shared scriptures, most of which had to do with how one becomes a child of God. And all of a sudden, in that moment of near-death, those verses just came flooding back into his mind. Flooding, flooding his heart, flooding his heart. And by the way, I've talked about Married people who are married to unbelievers. Let me talk about you parents. There are more of us like this here whose children are not following the Lord. Look, don't quit praying for them. You invested in them. You invested the Word of God in them when they were growing up. And that Word of God will come back at just the right moment in a time of crisis in most cases. But it will come back and their lives will be radically changed. Praise God for that. Let's, let's say praise the Lord for that. Because we want to see our children and our grandchildren know the Lord and love the Lord and know the Lord whom we know. This is the fault of the church. I haven't, we haven't taught who the real God is. We haven't displayed Him as we ought. But some of you have. Don't lose heart. Back to John Newton. He came to know Jesus. He became a priest in the Anglican church. That doesn't make anybody anything, by the way. Not because it's Anglican. It could be Baptist. It could be any other name you want to put on it. It doesn't make anything better for a person. He was born again, though. And do you know, he wrote this hymn. But also, he influenced the man in the British Empire who single-handedly brought down slave Trafficking and also the whole institution of slavery in the British Empire. William Wilberforce. He was saved through the influence and the encouragement of this man, John Newton. And after he was saved, Newton was his mentor and prayer support. He was the man he would go to when he would be so discouraged. And Newton would pray with him. They'd look at the Word. Look what a change the Lord can make in people. No change, no life. That could be the summation of this message. One final illustration, and it's just a quotation, really. I'm not a man, not the man I ought to be, 
this person said, I'm not the man I want to be. I'm not the man I could be. I'm not the man I can be. But praise God, I'm not the man I used to be. That's what Christ does in our lives. And He calls us to be yielded to Him. Martin Luther King Jr. is the one who said that, wrote it. People from all races, from every socioeconomic level, it doesn't matter what the color of a man's skin is. It doesn't matter what occupation you have. It doesn't matter where you got your degrees from. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank, how big your portfolio is. None of that matters. None. The what matters is that you know and understand God. That is eternal life, what Jesus says to us. Would you pray? Lord, we thank you that you are the initiator of our salvation. This is a great gospel. Lord, help us not neglect it. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, to be reminded of how great a salvation we have. If you're here today and you know that you don't know Jesus Christ, this is not an accidental message. It was made for you. And Christ wants you to humble yourself before Him and ask Him to take full control of your life today. Would you do that? Just humbly ask Jesus to forgive you and come into your life today. If you believe you've known the Lord a while, but you've drifted away from the Lord, or you really have not been properly taught about the role of God in your salvation and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Why don't you just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you fill me? Would you control me? I don't know what that means altogether, Holy Spirit, but I ask you to do that. Would you please? Father, we confess there were a long way off from where we'd like to be. But we know we are without excuse when it comes to getting in step with the Spirit. So we ask you to make this message something that we don't forget easily and don't simply remember it, but act on it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.